Hello and welcome to the ATP podcast. I'm Peter Mercato and I am based in Melbourne. It's an eerie feeling in Melbourne right at the moment. If we're in normal times, this would have been the middle Saturday of the Australian Open. Melbourne Park would have been teeming with people, a capacity crowd as always. Instead, we're in COVID times and it's a very different situation. There are no fans at Melbourne Park at the moment. Only a handful of players getting their five hours of exercise and practice in before we get the tournaments underway in a week's time. It certainly is a different feeling to 12 months ago here at this venue here in Melbourne. We've got players in quarantine. We've got commentators and officials in a harder quarantine, not allowed out for 14 days. There's plenty to talk about, and we're going to do a lot of that in this podcast. We're going to be catching up with Taro Daniel, the world number 127. He was caught up in a flight that had a positive COVID case, and so he is spending his 14 days in hard lockdown. We're going to find out how he is going with all of that. But joining me on the podcast, as he will be across the next couple of weeks, he has made it to Melbourne. He's here running AO Radio, which will be broadcast on ATP Tennis Radio for the full fortnight, is Chris Bowers, who is also in one of the Melbourne hotels and is uh, stuck in that lockdown. He's over halfway, so the finish line is in sight. Chris, how are you faring? Well, I guess if I had gone crazy, I may not know it. So I could say I'm fine, but I don't think that from me that counts as too much of an assurance. But uh, I seem to be okay. Uh, I've kept busy. I've got into a routine. And um, I suppose everything I've done in my room is the kind of thing that I would normally do. I'd go to my laptop. I'd eat some food. It's just that normally I would go out between times and that is what I haven't got. The moment I came through the door, I knew that I was within these four walls for the next 14 days. And so it is. We're going to get the player's perspective of what this process has been like in a moment. But tell us about how you got here. Obviously on a plane, I'll answer that first question for you. But the process of actually um, being selected for your flights and then then what happened in terms of traveling and then being put into a hotel for 14 days? Yeah, I mean, it, it's been an evolutionary process. I mean, as a non-player and non-coach, I was told, please do not arrive in Melbourne until at least the 18th of January because the window of 14th to the 17th of January was put aside for the players. But then um, there was there's only one way I was ever going to get in, and that was on one of the charter flights because there are very, very few flights coming into Melbourne these days. And uh, Tennis Australia, the uh, Australian National Tennis Association that owns and runs the Australian Open, they've kindly found a place for me on one of the charter flights, one of the ones through Abu Dhabi. So I had to get from London to Abu Dhabi and then from... Abu Dhabi to Melbourne. Um, I had to do my uh, COVID test within 72 hours of leaving London because otherwise I wouldn't have been allowed on the plane. Once we were here, we didn't go anywhere near the terminal building. We were basically shepherded to a hangar that had been uh, commandeered for uh, the purposes of receiving a whole load of players, coaches and other Australian Open participants. I count as an Australian Open participant, even though I don't actually play in the tournaments uh, because I'm participating in the overall administration of the tournament. And uh, yeah, we had our temperature taken, we had our passports checked, we picked up our bags and then we were shepherded to buses which went to the quarantine hotels under police escort 
And once we got to the hotel, I mean, I can see out the front entrance from my room every day. There have been at least four, sometimes six police officers outside. It is a full military operation to make sure that nobody uh, gets in and nothing must come out of my room other than dirty plates and laundry um, because uh, uh, that is part of the security. There's a um, an umpire um, in the next room to me and I happen to know that it's his birthday during the time here. I'm not even allowed to slip a birthday card under his door because that would contravene rules. So, you know, th- this is how strict they are. I, I accept it. It's it's tough. It's difficult. But the best way to get around it is just to amuse myself with all sorts of uh, distractions, work and entertainment. You've, you've got a sense of it being here now and obviously you'd be turning on the TV and seeing how it's all being covered from a Victorian and a Melbourne perspective last year. For those who didn't know, Melbourne had one of the, the harshest uh, lockdowns for the longest period of time, over 100 days where there were severe restrictions on, on what we could do. I couldn't travel and hang out with you folks on ATP Tennis Radio uh, last year because we weren't really allowed out of the suburbs. We were in for, for a long period of time to try and get this under control. Have you got a sense of the eeriness that's going on around Melbourne at this point in time? As I mentioned right off the top, Chris, this in ordinary times we'd be at Melbourne Park and trying to push our way through the crowds because it's the biggest day of the, the, the year in terms of the Australian Open. But it's not to be this time around and there's a, a really strange feeling, uh, particularly compared to 12 months ago. Yeah, I haven't got a sense of it in terms of I haven't actually wandered around the city centre. Um, from my hotel room, I can look out onto one of the main arteries leading out of the city centre. I look out onto St Kilda Road, which uh, goes from the city business uh, the uh, city business district to um, the closest part of the um, coast, Port Phillip Bay, to the centre of uh, Melbourne. And uh, yeah, I'm conscious of the fact that there are fewer cars and fewer trams than normally would be the case. I've also picked up a lot of the feeling from uh, news bulletins um, about just how wary the people of Melbourne and Victoria are about the tennis world coming to town, uh, in particular the fear that we might bring the virus back with us. That is entirely understandable and I am feel incredibly grateful to be here because I realise it's a privilege to have been allowed in. All I would say is that the whole purpose of beating the virus is that so, so that one goes back to something uh, resembling either normality or even if there's a new normality, is a quality of life that means that one does engage with the world. So I just think there's been an element of the local media that has, I think, slightly... Uh, enjoyed knocking the Australian Open when actually this could be a great success for everybody in the sense that it shows that Melbourne, despite the strictness of its lockdown, has not lost contact with the world and the world is still very happy to come to this wonderful city. Yeah, and it's a fair point to say that if it, when it all comes together, the, the five tournaments that are at Melbourne Park before the Australian Open itself and uh, putting all of that together, if it does go as we think it's going to go to plan, then um, yes, it will be a wonderful celebration of uh, Australia and Melbourne in particular starting to open up and maybe a template for how this can be done into the future. You know, I think if it's a success, everyone will want to be associated with it. And uh, I think that was the point. Craig Tiley, the tournament director, the Australian Open tournament director, he actually did a, a, a call with all the uh, media people in quarantine this week. And uh, he made the point that not only had everybody been explained uh, what the rules were, so if someone missed out on their uh, chance to 
escape quarantine for five hours to do a couple of hours of practice and uh, an hour and a half of physio, then that was actually flagged up in advance, even if some players didn't quite um, take the message in at the time. Um, but I also think that, uh, you know, he was saying there'll be uh, lots of people who will want to be associated with the Australian Open and the uh, lead-up tournaments if the whole thing is a great success. And in a way, I suppose twas ever thus, everyone wants to be associated with a success story and you don't want to be associated with uh, things that go wrong. So I think there's a lot of incentive for getting this right. And I've been impressed with uh, the way matters have been handled so far, even though it has obviously worked against my own personal freedom. Well, Chris is confined in one of the three quarantine hotels here in Melbourne. But the players, and some of them, are in the hard quarantine in some of the other hotels uh, across Melbourne. One of those is Taro Daniel, who actually competed in Australian Open qualifying uh, just a couple of weeks ago. Made the trip down. He lost in the third round. Made the trip down to Melbourne uh, for the potential to be a lucky loser. He's in the main draw. He has managed to get through, so he will be playing in the opening round here in Melbourne. But he tells us his uh, flight uh, wasn't without issue. There was a positive case there. And now he's stuck in 14 days hard quarantine. Yes, uh, I was one of those players that was considered a close contact from uh, one of the flights that had a positive case. So I'm in the full lockdown right now. But right now, I think it's the seventh day of my whole lockdown period. So I have another 50% remaining currently. Good. Thinking positive. But Chris is in lockdown as well. And Chris, you two can just swap tips amongst each other for the rest of this. Yeah. How's it been going? I mean, have you got into a routine or have you said uh, you're just going to go with whatever you want to do? No, definitely set up a routine because in the mornings, you know, I try to do virtual training sessions with my physical trainer, uh, which definitely is the most important part of the day. If you're able to work out, have a sweat. Uh, move your body, do the things that you need to do to prepare the best for the upcoming Aussie Open. And then you're a bit more relaxed towards the end of the day. And i trying to take as many interviews as I can, talking to as many people as I can, you know, just keep my mind sharp by, yeah, interacting with people. When did you find out that you were a close contact of someone and therefore you couldn't make use of the five hours to get out and do some hitting of balls and some physio? It was very late at night on the second day here. Uh, that was when I was supposed to figure out my practice schedule for the next day. Because when I was supposed to be able to, we were all supposed to be able to start practicing the next day. So I received my practice schedule, uh, set up my cohort. I was supposed to hit with Kimer Kopeans. Uh, he passed the qualies. But then right after we received the, the schedule, we also received 10 minutes later the unfortunate news of not being able to practice for the next two weeks. Oh, how did you feel about that? Because you must have known that it was a possibility, but what was the feeling? Yeah, I wasn't too surprised. You know, I always knew that the Australian government was extremely strict, you know, and they've been able to keep their cases at zero, which means that they need to keep being strict. And yeah, I always knew that it could happen. So when it did happen, I wasn't super disappointed, of course, disappointed, but I started thinking more about what can I do from tomorrow to not let this affect me as much as it can. On that, just looking at it, I guess, I mean, I, living in Melbourne, 
we had the perspective last year of, of being in a harsh lockdown for over 100 days and, and that sort of thing. How do you go in terms of being on your own? Because, you know, travelling around the world, it can be quite a, you know, an individual sport, but you do have support around you. How are you going being in a hotel room, even though you've got talking to people like us and you're on the phone and all of that sort of stuff, how are you going just, just being on your own in the one spot? Are you okay with that? Yeah, I'm, I'm totally fine with being alone. You know, I actually love being alone. <laughs> you know, since when since the pandemic started, Obviously, everyone struggled with protocols. I mean, everyone struggled with wearing a mask properly and stuff. And I was one of them, but I never struggled with social distancing. <laughs> you know, it's just one of my character traits. I like to just, I don't like to get too close physically to someone that I'm not too close to. So I don't have a problem being alone. The, the tougher thing for me is not being able to go outside and go for a walk or... I love going to watch movies, uh, to movie theaters and just walking around, observing people watching, you know, those things, the simple things that are taken away. But I, I guess after I come out of this, it's going to be uh, the freedom I haven't seen in the whole year. Yeah, and it's going to be a really interesting adaption because we've seen lots of people who have been in just the hotel quarantine, Australian residents have to try and make that uh, that adaption i guess to to being having the ability to go out and about and of course you come out of that and you're straight into playing tournaments you're straight into practicing you're straight straight into crowds it's uh it's going to be a little bit of an adjustment have you thought about that sort of thought about how you're going to make that transition yeah for sure i think you know everyone's very nervous right now uh not exactly knowing what to do when they go back into what is what would be the life before this pandemic. I think, you know, I'm going to feel uneasy the first few days seeing people without masks. And, but I think even if the cases are zero, I would still have to be a little bit careful, uh, take logical steps in order to avoid um, from the worst from happening, you know, because even if it's zero, the, I don't think the virus is completely gone from the whole country. There's always some freak chance of something bad happening yeah absolutely now conditioning you talked about um, doing the virtual training the virtual fitness have you got any equipment in your room has tennis australia been been helping you out with that what have you actually got to to work with yeah so you know the first couple days i was a bit worried because not many of the players were receiving anything because you know getting stuff into our rooms is a huge challenge here um but Suddenly, you know, two, uh, three days ago, I received a huge ship, not shipment, but I got delivered a bunch of goods into my room. And a lot of them were the stuff that I asked for, like uh, exercise mats, balance ball, medicine ball, kettlebell, dumbbells, and and a stationary bike, which is the most useful probably in this case, because uh, it's very difficult to get a sweat going when you're in your room. But with that, I can... I can do that. How long are you on the bike for? I think the first week. So until now, at least like an hour a day <laughs> for now. Um, and then from next week, I'm going to start dropping that base resistance aerobic part off a little bit and then start concent- concentrating a little bit more on the quickness of defeat, uh, reaction, you know, stuff like that to keep me sharper for when the matches start. Uh, I'm going to have to bother my down downstairs neighbors a little bit with that, but uh, 
I think everyone's, uh, you know, prepared for it. Well, you haven't been. We've been seeing a lot of players on social media uh, upending mattresses and hitting against curtains and things like that. Have you been doing any of that sort of stuff? We promise we won't tell hotel management or anything like that. No, no. Yeah, I haven't done any of that yet because uh, my coach told me that he tried that and then a lot of dust, you know, flares <laughs> up after you hit balls against the bed. So. If I have to do it, I'm going to keep it as my last card to play right before I go out so that I can grip my racket and swing the ball and then just have to injure one day or two of dusty room, hotel room air. <laughs> Are you at all worried about your hands getting soft? Um, because obviously, you, you know, you'll, you'll have a racket in your hand for three or four hours a day and you're not doing that at the moment. Does that worry you that you might get blisters when you start playing again? I'm actually very confident about my hands. Um, I, I've done a lot of training with hanging uh, on monkey bars, a lot of training with ring gymnastics rings, uh, which is not usual for tennis players, but I've done it in the last two years. And those things really make your hands a lot stronger and your skin on your hand a lot tougher. So I've never actually had a blister because of tennis in the last ever but especially in the last two years even less i'm writing that down i've got to use got to start using that because i get blisters all the time <laughs> i need softer head make sure you write that would take if they take nothing else out of this podcast do you listen take that you got a practical tip i look i look forward to seeing you hanging for some <laughs> rings peter that's for sure um taro have you had much contact with other players i mean have you been um, doing online calls or um, uh, smartphone calls yeah, so we have uh, we have daily calls with Tennis Australia on certain updates uh, about equipment, you know, about what if there are any new cases within the bubble, if there are any any news that we have, you know, we get updates from Tennis Australia and the ATP every day or every couple of days. So within that, within those calls, we comment, you know, on the Zoom calls with the players, certain suggestions, certain ways we can improve certain things or not or how we're happy with what's happening. So yeah, there has been communication with the players and especially with, uh, I've been talking some with Kimer Kopians who I was supposed to hit with. Okay. What's going to happen now and stuff like that. And do you find that um, when you talk to other players, whether in a large group or one-to-one -one, that you can, you can break down which of those falls into the category of being very inventive and creative in terms of what they can do in their room and, and who actually feels quite um, oppressed by it, who feels quite sort of that this is actually really a very difficult situation that they're not quite sure how to handle. Yeah, I think, I think it, it gets split into two, the players that, that don't seem to be too worried about losing their physique, physical uh, fitness, and the other half that that are very worried, you know, that that seem to think that maybe almost their tournaments uh, taken away from them. But I think I'm on the side that okay, you'll I'm on the more neutral side where of course you'll lose certain aspects of your physical, the all the work that you've done in the preseason, but. Tennis is more than just physical. There's a lot on the mental side. So if you, if you, the mental part's this time more important than the physical. So if you keep your mental game up, 
then the physical won't affect you as much when you come out. So how do you think this will affect not just the Australian Open, but the two um, ATP tournaments in the week before? I mean, do you think we're going to see a lot of unusual results? Or do you think it's going to bring out the the best in players because they will have to draw on more aspects of their game or what? I think we we shouldn't be surprised if we, if we see uh, uh, a lot of strange results, a lot of perhaps, you know, six one six ones. I think it's inevitable. And I wouldn't be surprised either if the guys who guys or girls who come out are able to play very well too. But I think we should be ready for that possibility of a lot of players of hard, hard quarantine not being able to produce their best tennis. But I think they can get that, you know, that rust out in that first week. And then probably in the eight Australian Open, they'll be better prepared because they'll have eight, nine days till then. But just on top of that, though, because we'll talk about sort of the dimensions of this in a moment, but you've had three matches already this year. You went and played the qualifying. So do you see that, that you and, and your fellow qualifiers might have a, a bit more of an advantage because you've, you've played the three matches, you've, you've done all the practice based around that, and now you're kind of tapering for two weeks before you get into the next three-week block? Yeah, that's another way to look at it for sure. I think I, I'm very confident of where my game is at, and especially I still feel like I'm in the same tournament since I've been in Doha playing the qualifying. So mentally, I don't feel like I lost a lot you know, and and for sure, I think the people that have lost the most are the people who didn't play tournaments before or the qualifying. So they just came straight here and then they had to hard quarantine. Those are the guys who are in the hardest disadvantage. But also the guys who played in Antalya and also in Delray yeah, right. Beach. Yeah, they they are better prepared than the guys who haven't played any matches. You mentioned a sort of a score there of six one six one, which obviously it was just an imaginary score, but um, which brings me to the idea that was suggested that maybe because of the quarantining, there should be a best of three set matches either for the whole of the men's singles or at least for the early stages. Do you have a view on that? Yeah, my stance is that it would be healthier for sure physically for all the guys to at least do that the first week, which would mean play the first three rounds, you know, in three sets. But I know that there are a lot of complicated processes that go behind that, you know, five sets or three sets. Cause obviously when you play five sets, there's a lot more TV time. So, you know, it's going to, I think it's going to be difficult to actually make it happen, but physically speaking, Solely from a player's perspective, three sets would be healthier on the body for sure. How big is the difference in dynamic playing best of three as opposed to what you will be playing in Australia, best of five? Yeah, well, I think best of three, you know, you can get to your limit physically at the best of three, but you usually will not cross that limit if you're well prepared. (laughs) But in five sets, if you go to five sets, then you're most probably are crossing this line of healthy, healthy sport line <laughs> into somewhere where it starts getting into taking away energy from your immune system. The fatigue is going to be a completely different level. And then it's, it becomes a lot harder to recover from. So five sets is a totally different beast. You know, uh, you have to go into it very carefully and mentally have to be very strong to keep up, keep that up for a few rounds at a time. 
2020 brought uh, two challenger titles, uh, one right at the very top of the year in a beautiful part of the world called Bernie in Tasmania. For those listening around the world, make sure you go visit. It's a nice place. And then towards the end of the year as well. In a truncated season, there weren't too many opportunities to play tournament tennis and you managed to pick up two titles. How much confidence did that give you, first off? And then what did you learn about yourself with the the different situation that 2020 presented? I mean, it's strange to say that, but it was a great year for me in terms of how I grew as a person, how I grew as a tennis player. Obviously, I started working with my coach, Sven Groneveld, the the off-season of 2000. 19 going into 2020 so you know i i started i i went to i came down australia with him last january you know and then had that title with him and bernie uh we've been putting in a lot of great work since then and i also started working on my mental game and you know that has helped me accept these tougher tougher uncontrollable things in a better fashion you know all these thing all these crazy things that are happening with COVID are are very unfortunate but you just got to move on in your own way and and do what you can at given that moment so I think I was able to do that very well especially in the end of the last season when I won that tournament in Hamburg and hopefully I can continue kind of living in the moment uh, just seeing things how they are and keep going. And just one other thing, just on that, because we had that long break where there was no tournament action. You're a player that has, has travelled all over the world, and we often talk about players and the grind. And I'm sure you could, you and, and many of your players could could write books on on the grind and what it's like going from place to place and the experience that you have. All of a sudden, that gets turned off. You get the chance to um, have a bit of downtime, I suppose. Yes, still train, but in some respects, even though you're there's various stages of lockdown and things like that, you get the opportunity to to live a normal life where you can go and practice for a couple of, then you can go home and see family and friends. And, and, and how is that experience, how was that experience of not the constant grind of having to travel, but you could actually be home and, and almost be like a normal person for a while? It was great, in my opinion, because I was in Tokyo for most of that time for four or five months. So I've actually probably never been in one place for over three months in the last 15 years. So that was, you know, great also just to reflect what the, the crazy job that we have as tennis players traveling 30 weeks a year. Because when I was until two years ago, I would think that our, our job is difficult, but we're so lucky to be able to do this and earn money through it. But then when I stopped and reflected on what I've been doing for the past 10, 15 years, I came back with a very strong self-respect and also mutual respect for other players for doing what we do, you know, because when you stop for two, three months, you forget what it's like to be nervous for a match. You forget what it's like to go through jet lag and have to play when you're, when you're not feeling well, when you're, when your knees when your knees or your elbows are not feeling good and are, you're not sure if you're if you should play or not the next day, all those things, you know, you for, you kind of forget until you start playing tournaments again, and you know, not traveling for four or five months. Yeah, I consider that when I'm training wherever home or in the training base, and do the normal 
tennis two, two hours in the morning, training two hours in the afternoon. And that like a normal work day as like a normal person <laughs> as my office at office hours. So I, I was able to, yeah, feel that as well to have a very consistent routine over three months. So having got that as part of your own personal experience, you will be aware coming to Melbourne that there are a lot of people in this part of Australia who are very nervous about the tennis community coming in and potentially bringing in a virus, which the people of Melbourne and Victoria have worked hard to um, to keep under control. What would you say to a resident of Melbourne or a resident of Victoria who says, look, nothing against you personally, but I'm worried about your community coming in, given that you travel around the world. What, what would you say to them to try and reassure them? Well, you know, that very grateful for the opportunity and also that, you know, we're going through a very, very strict, as strict of a quarantine and protocols as anyone can go through currently to make sure that we don't spread the, vi the virus when we come out of it. Uh, I think we'll be one of the safest people to come out of, you know, so you can be very state, uh, you can be very relaxed about us after the quarantine's over. Of course, right now, everything's very uh, chaotic a little bit. Um, but I definitely understand, you know, if if a person's worried that the because they worked so hard to get back into this zero tran, uh, community transmission. So I definitely respect what you guys have gone through. But after these two weeks, we will be very safe. So that was Taro Daniel. We wish him well. Whenever you appear on the podcast or you appear on our live coverage on ATP Tennis Radio, you become ATP Tennis Radio's own. So, Chris, we've adopted him. And I think after listening to that, he'll have a few more fans around the world, a really level-headed kind of guy who understands what's going on. I like the way he admitted to the sort of personal growth he went through last year. And you can hear it in his answers. His attitude towards everything is I think, really exemplary. He's willing to stand up for himself, but he's also aware of, you know, where, where the pressure points are. And, you know, he is reading the mood music of um, having come to Melbourne. And I think that's to his immense credit. And, you know, I've always been aware of him as a player, but uh, I will be looking out for his results a lot more than I was before. Yeah, top uh, 70 uh, in 2018 and then had a, a little bit of a drop in 2019. As I mentioned, a couple of challenger titles in 2020. So setting himself for a big 2021. Speaking of which, there's a few other things uh, happening that aren't related. Well, it's sort of related to quarantine and, and that sort of thing. Some other tennis news going on in the ATP world. Andy Murray's not coming. He had a positive COVID test uh, prior to getting onto one of the uh, the flights coming down here, the chartered flights to Melbourne, and it's been announced that he won't be making the trip at all. It's logistically too difficult for him to, to come in and uh, quarantine for the 14 days if he didn't come with all of the other players. So he's really disappointed, obviously, that he couldn't come down. It's another year that we'll have to wait to, to see him here, Chris, but unfortunately these are the times that we're in. He was due to fly on Wednesday the 15th, and uh, in his... Uh, COVID test that he has to take three days before flying, he tested positive. I think this is a blessing in disguise for Andy Murray. I think for him to have travelled and he might, he might well have played one of the uh, two uh, 250 level tournaments uh, at Melbourne Park in the run up to it but here's a guy who has had this big 
hip operation and he's suffered from compensatory problems. His biggest problem last year was not the hip. It was uh, problems in the pelvic area. And I think he needs to build up with best of three set matches. For him to go straight into a best of five, look what happened at the US Open last year where he played four hours, 40 minutes in his first round match. And then we all got excited about seeing him play Felix Auger-Eliassime and he had absolutely nothing in the tank. In fairness, Auger-Eliassime played brilliant tennis that day. But I fear that Murray needs to build up. So while I understand that he's gutted, I understand the disappointment because he will have been looking forward to this and it would have been his thing to look forward to. I actually think this will help overall and he will be in much better shape the next time he has to play a best of five set match. Let's talk about Dominic Team because Nicholas Massou's not coming. He, he also had a, a positive test before jumping on the plane. So it's, it's going to be an interesting dynamic for, for Dominic to not have that, that support in the stands. Like, obviously, they can talk in the hotel. I'm sure that there's just one continuous dialogue going on at the moment while he's in quarantine in Adelaide. But not actually having your coach in the stands, I wonder what sort of um, impact that's going to have on his tennis heading into the Australian summer. But, you know, this is all part of the same thing we were talking a few minutes ago uh, with uh, Taro Daniel about. And that's that we don't know how tournaments, not just the Australian Open, but the, uh, the two events leading up to it and the tournaments afterwards, how they're going to play out. How is it going to be for players who are used to having everything controlled, not being able to control all elements of their lead up to a tournament? For some, that will be... Um, a disaster because they like to control everything. For others, it will just be water off a duck's back. They just say, okay, well, in tennis, we never know how long a match will last. We never know what time we're going to get on court. So it's not a big deal. Some players will enjoy using aspects of their game that they don't normally use, their ability to think on the spot, their ability to try something different, their ability to manage their energy if matches go long in hot weather. Um, And in a way, not having your coach with you is another element of that. I think Nicholas Massou has been brilliant for Dominic Team, but I don't think there's any harm in a team playing a tournament or two um, without him. And, and he has his dad there, you know, and, and his dad is not just um, uh, uh, Mr. Team Senior. He's actually a formal tennis coach. He's the official tennis coach of Dennis Novak, Austria's number two player. And because Nicholas Massou isn't here, it means that uh, uh, Wolfgang team is the coach of the Austrian ATP Cup team. So it's not like he hasn't got any input. It's just a different figure. And as long as Dominic doesn't get too hung up on, oh, it's not the same, I don't think there'll be much of a problem. Carlos Moyer, another the, the coaching fraternity uh, not coming to Australia. He's uh, staying home as well. Let's move on because there's uh, some other news uh, hanging around and that is that Sasha Zverev uh, has, uh, I guess, ended his association with uh, Teammate, which is the management company, Roger Federer's management company, and he'll be coached by his father and his brother in particular, Misha, is going to take more of a role on the coaching side of things. And uh, I think Misha is the, the coach of, of Team Germany at the upcoming ATP Cup. It's going to be interesting to see how the brothers actually get along in that different dynamic. It's not player to player, brother to brother. It's that uh, coach and player sort of relationship and how that, that might change things. Yeah, I mean, I've talked to a number of people over the years, mostly women players, who you know, find that their coach becomes their partner. And it is actually very difficult to manage that because 
uh, one of the things a coach has to do when a player comes off court is say, right, you did this wrong, you did that wrong, you did that wrong, and this is what we have to work on. When actually family members are often in great demand when a player comes off court, especially after a loss, for you know putting an arm around and saying, look, it's only a tennis match um, and you'll come through this stronger. So uh, having to put both those roles into one person is obviously a challenge. I think the fact that Misha is 10 years older than Sasha will actually help. They are brothers and Sasha clearly looks up to Misha um, because of that big age gap. I think Misha plays a very different tennis to Sasha and therefore I think he could well help Sasha with aspects of his game that Sasha doesn't necessarily um, count as strengths at the moment. When we did our time capsule for this year, I actually predicted that Sasha would not have as good a year as he's had in recent years. And that's a bit of a flyer because I've thought that a couple of times in the last couple of years. Was it the beginning of 2019 when he had all sorts of changes? He split from his then management company and he split from his girlfriend and there were rumblings about whether he was comfortable with his dad as his coach. And he did have a rough start to the year, but ended up qualifying for the ATP finals. So I, I look at Zverev a little bit as the Thomas Burdick of his generation. He is so consistent. He will always be there. I'm not sure whether he'll win a Grand Slam tournament, although he came within two points of winning one four months ago. And I just think that he will have a rough start to this year because of all these changes. But come the middle of the year, you know, he may be hitting a rich vein of form again. So I think we have to give him time. Well, family comes first for Zverev. But just to round off the news for uh, this podcast, the ATP has announced some more tournaments uh, arriving on the calendar. There's going to be a tournament in Singapore the week after the Australian Open, a beautiful part of the world, Singapore, and not too far for the players to get to as their next stop should they want to go there. There's also going to be a tournament in Spain, in Marbella, happening after the Miami Open from the 5th of April. There's also going to be some more playing opportunities for the players as well. The singles main draw and qualifying draw size in Dubai is going to be expanded, and the qualifying draw in Mexico and also in Argentina and Chile are going to be expanded as well. So more opportunities for players to qualify for the 250 events. There's also been a change. The Hungarian Open uh, has been moved to Belgrade from 2021. The Men's Clay Court Championship, the US, in Houston, the 250 event there, won't be happening in April, but they are going to look to try and fill that gap where possible. And all of the other events and the other tournaments, as previously announced, are remaining in place. You can catch all the action and find out where the tournaments are going to be played and when on the ATP Tour website you're listening to the atp tennis radio podcast available on itunes spotify TuneIn, in and atptour.com i'm peter ricardo i'm joined by my fellow atp tennis radio and ao radio commentator chris bowers who is still in lockdown here in melbourne preparing for the first tournaments of the year in australia one of those tournaments is the atp cup and this week the draw was made for the second edition it's an intriguing lineup because there are fewer countries being represented this year due to the COVID situation. 12 countries are lining up. They're competing in four groups with the winner of each group progressing to the knockout stages. So it's going to be a shorter event held at Melbourne Park this year. The groups are Group A, Serbia, Germany and Canada. In Group B, we've got Spain, Greece and Australia. 
Group C is Austria, Italy and France. And Group D is Russia, Argentina and Japan. Before we get your thoughts on how this is going to play out, uh, Chris, let's hear what former players Mark Petchy and Jim Courier had to say as they joined Draw Ceremony host Todd Woodbridge. The first group that's come out, Todd, is is pretty pretty brutal, really. Serbia, Germany and Canada obviously got a lot of talent on the Canadian team, particularly with somebody like Raonic on these sort of courts. It's going to be uh, it's going to be tough. And obviously, we saw last year at the ATP Cup just how important the doubles are. And, you know, I think France, from that point of view, are looking very good in the doubles department from there. But they're in that group with with Austria uh, and Italy. It's great to see Fanini back after his his ankle injuries. Obviously, Greece have got one great player, uh, but Rafa has a great head-to-head against it's a past six and one. So from that point of view, you kind of look at that group and you feel as though that, you know, it's going to be the Aussies that perhaps are going to give the Spanish a, a run for their money. The, the Russians, for me, in terms of the singles, are just a firepower house. And, and I think that they're going to be, you know, if, they, if somebody can squeeze a singles from them out of Argentina... Uh, or possibly Japan, that will be interesting. But from that point of view, um, you know, some good groups. But I'd say that the Group A is going to be the toughest. Group A, toughest for for you, Patch. Jim, the one unique thing about the ATP Cup is that we get these incredible matchups so early in a season and and we rarely Mm -hmm. see these matchups until we get to finals of ATP events. But when you look at them right now, last year we had an amazing match with Alex Dimonor, if I talk about the home team. He's going to have to take on, uh, again, Rafa Nadal. That's one, obviously, (laughs) here down under we're going to be looking forward to. What else do you like? I mean, Alex is, is going to have his work cut out for him, but he'll be up for the, the task, no doubt. He's come out of the blocks pretty well so far this season, but he's got, I mean, he's got Rafa and he's got Tsitsipas. So um, that's a big challenge for him. But man, Australia was so good in a, in a very difficult draw last year to get out into the quarterfinals. So maybe they'll be able to pull off another upset. I mean, it's a condensed field this year, right? So there's so many great matchups. I mean, you're going to see, I mean, the, the Canadians versus the Serbians, right? I mean, we don't know back is such a heavy favorite any match he plays but Canada will have Raonic going in at number two singles they've got capable double skills so you just you know everyone's going to have to be on their toes here but one thing we know for sure there's going to be a lot of energy a lot of passion because the players are playing for a team and for their nations it's going to be an awesome way to kick off the Aussie summer down here. Todd last year was the best tournament of the year for me um, in terms of the quality of the tennis. I mean, the Medvedev uh, match last year against Novak was just simply astounding. And I think that's also, you know, in in one way, you know, it was just extraordinary. But I suppose from the player's point of view, obviously with this year being a lot tighter in terms of the amount of players uh, time that they have ahead of the AO, that would be a bit of concern because it was, it was unquestionably the best quality of tennis that, that we saw last year. So, and it, it's going to be a lot of fun. You've got people like Monfils out there. Of course, he was one of the hardest hit by lockdowns. He was on an amazing run. 12 match wins, two titles, lost to Novak having had three match points. It's going to be great to see somebody like him light it up with the fans out there. Mark Petchy and Jim Courier, who'll be working on the event, giving their initial draw analysis to Todd Woodbridge. Chris Bowers is still with me. Chris, you've heard what Mark and Jim had to say. What's the standout for you? It's only the second year that the ATP Cup has been played, but I thought last year the interesting thing was the second players because the format is such that qualification depends on the top player and the coach of each team is the top player's coach. So you always get some great matches um, when the number one player plays the number one player, but it's interesting looking at the number two players. And, And an interesting dynamic for me is something like the Canadian team where 
The number two player is Milos Raonic. Now, for years, Raonic was the player that all young Canadians look up, looked up to. And you had these two young Canadians, Felix Auger-Leassime and Denis Shapovalov, coming up. Shapovalov is the number one player and Raonic the number two player. Now, I suspect Raonic has long since made his peace with that, but it's a, it's a very, very different dynamic. And I think in many ways it's the number two match, the number two players that will determine the outcome of the ATP Cup, even if it were to come down to another um, clash between the titans of Serbia and Spain as last year, uh, given that they're headed by Djokovic and Nadal. Yeah, the, the ones that are closer in rankings, it's the, the interesting ones for me. So Team Italy, for example, Berrettini is the the number one player, but then you've got Fabio Fanini as the, the number two player. And you think, well, he could just as easily have been the number one player in that team. Andrei Rublev uh, in the uh, the Team Russia uh, he is one of those players that, again, he could be the number one player. But then you've got Daniel Medvedev, who, who's there as well. And I guess the, one of the interesting ones for me is Team Germany, because Sasha Zverev is the number one player. But then you've got Jan Lennart Struff, who's playing against Dusan Lavic and Milos Raonic, as you mentioned, Chris. And he could pull off some, some big results for Team Germany. And I think you're right. Those, those number two players are going to be so crucial uh, for, for a lot of these teams, because some of them should be number one players, really. And I'll tell you what's also interesting. I mean, you mentioned Fonini there. He's in my hotel. Um, you will get players who are playing ATP Cup matches within two or three days of coming out of quarantine. And that's where the difference between those who were allowed out for their five hours to practice and have physio and have a meal off-site may well be a fact. That may be... The difference may be palpable compared with those people who've had to be in what you call hard quarantine, which is the 14 days where they're just not allowed out of their room for anything. And the other thing, too, that we're not really touching on, I think we we should, is uh, maybe in the next uh, edition of the podcast, is the doubles. So it's uh, three matches that are being played uh, per tie, so two singles and one doubles. But the strength of your doubles players and, and the higher ranking of your doubles players, when paired with someone from your country who you may not ordinarily played with, that dynamic is going to be really interesting too. Yes, and it's also one of those situations where you get some of the top singles players playing doubles uh, because they just reckon that that's their best option. And sometimes that can be a little bit insulting to the regular doubles players who ply their trade on the doubles circuit and who are the premier specialists in doubles in, in world tennis. But... It depends so much on the partnership. And if you haven't got an obvious partnership, it's often worth throwing uh, your best players in and hoping that class tells out over uh, you know, the honed pairing that you will have from you know, players who play on the tour week in, week out. So that's it for this edition of the ATP Tennis Radio podcast. My thanks to Chris Bowers, who'll be with me again next week. And, of course, Todd Woodbridge, Mark Petchy, Jim Curry, and our special guest, Taro Daniel. Check out the ATP website for all things related to the tour and atpcup.com for all the latest happenings leading up to the second edition of the ATP Cup. And please join us back here on the podcast next weekend for more analysis, debate, discussions and exclusive interviews. I'm Peter Mercato. Thanks for listening.